Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, and my guest today is retired Air Force PJ and combat rescue officer Joe Barnard. Joe had a 33-year military career with four years in the Army, and then he transitioned to the Air Force and spent half of the rest of his career as an enlisted PJ and the other as a Crow with nine combat deployments and three humanitarian deployments. Joe retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2016. He's been married for 28 years, and he and his wife, Megan, have two boys, 24 and 22. Megan is a former Broadway-style dancer and has been a yoga instructor for the last decade. They traveled to Southeast Asia for five months after he retired, and they settled in Jacksonville, Florida. Joe was a COO of a 32,120-person wireless construction company in Atlanta from 2018 to 2019, but then he decided to leave because it lacked fulfillment for him. He has applied to Jacksonville University for acceptance into the Master of Science program for mental health counseling in the summer of 2020. We're gonna learn a lot more about Joe, his time in the Army and Air Force, and challenges he faced in both his transition and his, his and his wife's use of yoga and mindfulness in their lives. And that's all here in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. But before we jump into the conversation with Joe, I'm starting every show by letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path and why we're doing this show. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support and attendance at our retreats, while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Okay, that all said, I'll go ahead and stop here for a quick plug for our sponsors. For those of you who may be watching, just bear with us for five seconds as we pause for the audio version of the show. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is retired Air Force Combat Rescue Officer Joe Barnard. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be here. Hello, everybody. How you doing, man? Yeah, li- living a dream in Jacksonville, man. Growing my hair out. There you go. Yeah, it's a, yeah. kind of a crazy time for us all. Uh, so, just a heads up for those listening: we've this is our second show uh, together, me and Joe. We we recorded this about a week and a half ago, and uh, my audio on it uh, was terrible. So Joe's been good enough to record this twice. And uh, we're going to try to publish it tomorrow. So one day in between recording and publishing. And right now, uh, it seems like the world has gone crazy on the outside with everything going on with the coronavirus um, and, and, the, uh, and the markets the way they are. So are you, you doing all right, you and your family? Yeah, yeah. We're empty nesters. Uh, so it's just Megan and I. And, uh, you know, 
she's getting mad at me because I've been going surfing and putting coconut oil in my hair and I, I leave <laughs> soul globe points on the couch where I sit and stuff like that. That's hilarious, man. For, uh, for the younger folks, that's a uh, Eddie Murphy uh, coming to America reference. So if you don't know that, <laughs> you got to go watch it. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a classic. Quite so much. We could probably speak in, in uh, movie quotes. But, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's how, that's how the teams, uh, that's basically all we talked was, was movie quotes, you know, 90% of the time. So. One of the things we pushed in rescue when I was there is like when, when all the have quick and secure communication was coming online and it didn't work. Yeah. Let's just go to brevity and movie quotes, man. Our enemy. <laughs> and while we were joking, we were semi-serious because there was a point in there when we started this progressive communications, right? That it didn't work too well. And we were yeah. more in the dark than if we just had open source comms. But anyway, um, yeah, movie quotes are, we live, we grew our boys up on movie quotes. So sometimes <laughs> we just, there you go. Well, Hey, uh, in the intro, man, I, I covered a little bit about your military career and a little bit about your personal life. I mean, you, you heard all that. So I'll jump right in here. What made you join the army initially? And then what made you transition over to the air force a couple of years later? Yeah, good question. So I grew up in South Florida, um, good little household. My dad was a real hard worker. He's my hero. Um, mom, really loving mom, German, Irish dad, Italian mom, uh, very loving God in our house. Always was looking at us like, Hey, if you did something wrong, you could do better. It wasn't a sort of judgmental God in our house. So that was nice. It was a great atmosphere. She set up for us. Um, I was a small kid. I really wasn't that smart. I had dyslexia, um, still do somewhat, but, um, man, I was like, I need to do something. But I was always that kid that sort of jumped off of stuff and wasn't scared of, of things. Um, but when I went and took the ASVAB and the Army recruiter, like in 1981, I joined in 82. He's like, that's the lowest ASVAB score I've ever seen. He's like, dude, I don't even know if you're – you're not smart enough to get shot at. That's like basically <laughs> – and I was like, holy smokes, man. So um, Reagan era time, uh, joined the Army, tried to get better both mentally and physically uh, joined. Like I, I, my senior year, I wrestled like 106, 108. Uh, that's Jeez. when I graduated high school out small. And so by the time I got out of the army, I was like 180 pounds, uh, found some great guys to work out with and do stuff with. And, and uh, uh, still friends with a bunch of them today. But um, yeah, that's, I, I went in the army because I had to, like there was, who knows what I was going to do. I just, I was a terrible student. I was a D student at best. So, um, I'm, I, I'm sort of lucky. I graduated. I was just lost. I was, I was lost and I didn't know what the, what the heck to do. So. Wow. And, and then what did you, what did you do while you were in the army? I was an infantryman, uh, in the 82nd and, uh, sort of my, my eyebrows raised to jumping, being associated with aircraft. And once you sort of see guys that, um, you know, one of the things I, I used to tell my guys all the time is, hey, man, if you're going to be an eagle, you can't hang with turkeys, you know. And so <laughs> um, I sort of became a professional turkey spotter and tried to avoid them and, and hang out with the eagles. And I found smart people and physical people and, and proper attitude people that I tried to hang with and become a better person. And um, uh, it my, you know, 
like in high school, like counselors would tell me, dude, you're not going to be anything. You just might as well be a ditch digger. I mean, they were, I was like, I was trying to find a lot of places to find motivation and none were really turning out. And so when I joined basic training, I had like a drill instructor go, man, you picked that up pretty quick. That's good that you did that. Nice. Or, um, a little different from your teachers. Yeah. We'd be on the shooting range and, uh, I'm right-handed, but left eye dominant. So I, sh- I shoot left-handed. He goes, man, I've, I've never seen anybody shoot as good as you with that sort of what you have going on. Usually they, people suck as a shooter when they're left eye dominant. I'm the same way. I'm left eye dominant. Yeah. right hand. Yeah. So he's like, Matt, so as those things went along, you just sort of, you start feeling like, man, all right, maybe I could do something here. And so, um, I enjoyed my army time. It sort of wasn't for me when, you know, Hey, you 40 guys go attack that hill type deal. And the scenarios we were working on were sort of Vietnam that were like 80, you were going to make it back down. <laughs> we're crunching those numbers you're like "Ah, so um i got out and came back to south florida and i was a lifeguard and uh now that i had this physicality to me and i've always had a ton of energy i worked warehouses i drove delivery trucks um i loved working in warehouses in south in miami with like haitians and cuban guys and it'd be like a competition and like who could pull the stuff faster who could load it faster who could do that type of stuff. And it was just constant ragging on each other. And it was just really a good guy type thing. Um, I had two different jobs. I'd work a day job and a night job and always had cash in my pocket. Then I met my wife uh, before I went to the air force. And she's like, man, are you rich? You know, you always have this money in your pocket. I was just working my ass off. And I was driving like a a cool lifted truck with a big old stereo in it. (laughs) Um, So I was sitting in a lifeguard tower with a guy who was a reserve PJ out of Homestead. He goes, Hey man, I, I think you'd probably be a good pararescue, you know, oh, jumping wow. and shooting, you know, all the water work, all that stuff. And, and, uh, medical, and, you know, technical rope was starting to come in our confined space rescue and all the mountaineering and all that, like that we're pretty good at. Um, I'm like, yeah. Um, so I, ju- I joined and went on my way into the pipeline and, and continued on. Nice, man. And then, and then once you, once you joined as an enlisted PJ, what was the progression from enlisted PJ to crow? And then for our listeners, can you explain what a crow is? Cause I, I have a feeling there's quite a few who, who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just, I described the air force this way and this is no rag on, the other side of the air force, but there's 2% backpack carriers, wearers, and there's like 98% briefcase carriers. So very, very white collar, technical, studious, introverted type people. And there's really not too many sort of soft operators. Um, combat control and pararescue are the enlisted special operations um, folks. They're like 600 each. Special tactics officers, there's like 100, 110 of those guys. Combat rescue officers, there's like 70, 80 of those guys. So it's very small numbers compared to special forces and the Army and, and SEALs and the Navy and, sure. and what's going on in, in the Marines now. So, um, but yeah, it was, you know, it, very cool job. Uh, we could go in more how. Crow sort of was created. I think we talked about that last time. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, let's let, let's cover that, man, because I, th- I thought that was really interesting. I mean, that it, it didn't even exist before 
uh, yeah, when you were a Yeah, right around the time, there was a movie that just came out called, um, oh man, I forget the name of it. It's about Pitsenbarger and his Medal of Honor pararescuement in Vietnam. I think it's Uncommon Valor. Um, it just came out a few months ago. Uh, but anyway, around the time that they were upgrading his Air Force Cross to Medal of Honor, we also had a bunch of PJ Chiefs going, listen, these helicopter guys and these 130, Rescue 130 guys are in charge of us. Their airplanes becoming more complex with avionics and telemetry and comms. Our job's becoming more complex with medical procedures and move, shoot, communicate, parachutes and, you know, technical rope stuff. We need our own officer leadership. This isn't working. And, uh, of course, the combat control community always had special tactics officers in charge of them. So we sort of use that model a little bit to be in charge of just the pure rescue side of what we do. And so that's sort of how it came to be. Um, um, there was a chief named Paul Miller who was our functional manager up at the Pentagon. Whit Peters was the secretary of the Air Force at the time. Paul was getting ready to go run outside on the mall. And he saw an empty treadmill next to Whit Peters. And instead of running outside, he got onto it. He says, hey, I'm Chief Miller. I'm the functional for pararescue. The beautiful thing about having solemn numbers is everybody knows sort of inside a 400,000 person organization of the Air Force. They know what pararescue is, right? You know, I yeah. mean, we, have, we have a ton of Air Force crosses and things of that nature and, and done some cool stuff. So, um, And they understand how tough the training is because they – when they're going through that basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, they see these other guys being tortured, you know, every day. And they're like, how the heck's that going on? You know? Right. So, um, so yeah, next thing you know, um, he's like, Hey, he brought it to the chief of staff of the Air Force. He's like, Hey, the, these guys need their own career field. And 2001, it happened. And then, and then you actually became a, a, what was the actual process of you becoming a crow? Like, what it was there extra training you have to did you have to have a degree what were, what were the requirements and and yeah so process? i was an instructor at the schoolhouse uh from 97 on i was a pj for probably about 10 years now um i was on our parachute team and i'm at the schoolhouse and megan's like i we have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and she's like dude you need to make more money <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in that boat right now, the one-year-old and the three-year-old. Luckily, I, I'm, I'm on the O side already. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, roger that. Yeah, we qualified for WIC. We qualified for women, infant children. Wow. Um, well, I was a staff sergeant. She was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, we made that decision because both our moms didn't work, and we enjoyed the household that we had with our moms always being there and not being uh, turnkey kids or whatever the hell they call them. Sure. Um, and so she's like, dude, I don't want to work. I'm like, Roger that, you know, um, you know, let's, let's develop a plan. So, um, went down to one car and I, I rode my bike to work and, you know, we just sort of made it work. Happy little house, you know? So, yeah. um, but, uh, so I was going to school every weekend, every weekend, uh, for a year, Saturday and Sunday, like eight hours a day. And then working as an instructor Monday through Friday knowing that you were going to be coming uh, a crow? I was, actually, I was actually pretty deep into the FBI. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Uh, interview process. And then there was a parachute accident in Arizona. Um, and they asked me to go help investigate it. 
as a sort of a SME in the Air Force. I was, I was an air ops instructor and on the parachute team. Okay. So I go and I meet this 05 there, and I'm like, who are you? He had master free fall wings on, which is, you know, that's a pretty big deal, especially yeah. inside the Air Force. And he wasn't a special tactics officer, and he was an aerospace physiologist. And so me and him started doing stuff with this investigation. He's like, dude, you ought to work on your master's, submit to be an aerospace physiologist. I'll put you in charge of all Air Force junk. Wow. Oh, okay. So um, fast forward, I finished my bachelor's. I started my master's. I submitted for that program. I got accepted. And while I'm in that OTS, it was that fake OTS, the one that the medical corps folks go through. <laughs> <laughs> My wife went through something similar and she would say the it's same. Totally, yeah, it's, it's like you drink beer every night. It's like unreal, right? I'm like, girlie, this is how you're training young lieutenants. But anyway, so um, yeah, like all the medical f- corps folks, like if there was an orthopedic surgeon who got hired as a major to be in, in the Air Force, like I'm teaching him how to put stuff on his uniform and stuff like yep. that. He's like, yep. I, have no I have no idea what to do. But. <laughs> So as soon as I, when I was in there, they announced the combat, the, the development or the, the start of the combat rescue officer career field. And they're like, Hey, you're going to be a combat rescue officer. And nice. So I was the fourth, I was the fourth guy picked up. Wow. They brought over a helicopter pilot, um, who was a former PJ and they brought over two special tactics officers. Then I was picked up and then there was a PJ who was around four years. That was going to be a security forces guy. He was in OTS. They picked him up, and then they started picking up other guys. And, cool. And we grew it in 2001. And, and what's the size of that community now? It's probably 75, 80. Geez, so you um, guys all know one another, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. You definitely know of, of somebody for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, was, it was interesting because eventually we had to stop taking par- former pararescuemen as combat rescue officers because – they were low density, high demand. They were only sure. manned at 40% seven level. We, you know, the air force does three level, five level, seven level. Well, we had like 300% three levels and we had like 20% seven levels. Well, the seven levels are the ones that train with the three levels. We were, you know, we were wrong side of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. It's upside down pyramid. Yeah. And so you get these guys with degrees and they're like, Hey, I want to come over. I want to be an officer. And you're like, you know, we need you more, we need you more as an E7 than we do an O1. Yep. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, it shook out to where slowly but surely the air education training command, uh, inside the air force caught up and they're doing really well now, but it took a long, a long, long time, uh, for them to figure it out. Um, I had a little bit to do with some of that, you know, trying to force the issue, but, um, yeah as I went on commanded our schoolhouse, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it's evolved pretty good for starting a new career field post nine 11. And here we are in 2020, you know? Sure. I mean, that's amazing. 19 years, what you guys have done. And I want to get into, you know, uh, the, the schoolhouse and your commanding of the schoolhouse down, down the line here in a minute, but, um, some of the things that we discussed when we recorded this earlier were some challenges that you overcame in your, in your career, your 33 year career. Um, one of which happened at the schoolhouse when you were an instructor, can you go into the details of, of what happened there? Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, I, I don't know what it is where the negative things in your life impact you more than the positive because I've had thousands of positive things happen, but I've definitely had some negative things that we'll discuss. And I think um, how we overcame them was, was pretty cool. And I say we because Megan and I are a team and, and the boys and, and they, they're going through this as you're going through it. So um, I had a great support group of friends and family that, that's, that helped me through this stuff. But um, I was an air ops instructor. I was with my supervisor. We were supposed to go to Pensacola for some drunk training. A hurricane was coming through the Gulf. They're like, hey, go do an Advon advanced party trip to set it up. Go to Nellis Air Force Base. So we had an operational unit there. We are going to use some of their facilities and boats and stuff like that. Uh, for the water for water jumps. Um, the day before, we were out doing some advanced jumps between each other. This is the time when we started to bring on civilian rigs and jump cameras so we could film the students and show them what they're doing right and wrong. Right. Very, very at its infancy of what we were doing. Um, we go out for a training jump, and he, he burned in. He he didn't open his parachute full force, 120 miles an hour into the ground. And the, the drop zone just sort of erupts uh, into a bad scene. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, it, it's just not good. Um, and so I was the first one to his body and sort of sat there and, you know, was just like, whoa. Uh, prior to that, I've done some body recoveries and I've done some good medical treatment on people, broken femurs and Criking people in the highway when they had a bad accident and that type of stuff. But wow. This, you know, when you're sort of looking at your buddy and you're going, oh, you know. Yeah. So it, it was just tough. Um, uh, How did you, know, you deal with it? Like, yeah, first, not, not you just know, being a, yeah, go ahead. Somebody of faith, the first thing I said after, you know, the coroner came and got them, they brought them to Vegas. I'm talking to people back at my command. I'm like, Hey, I need to talk to somebody. So they set up a Catholic priest for me to talk to as soon as I got back to the base. They sent, um, a guy named Marco Mahoney to be with me. Um, from we were stationed at Kirkland air force base in Albuquerque. The next day we were supposed to go to morgue and sort of see what we're going to do with Wayne. Um, but after I talked to the priest and Marco got here, he goes, Hey, let's go over to the morgue now. And so we got to the morgue and they're like, man, we don't, you know, Mark, the first thing Marco says is, Hey, his wife, Jean wants to view him. Yeah. And they're like, dude, you can't view this guy. I mean, he was hardly recognizable, but what really was an amazing thing is his chin strap cut his chin and you know, his head was almost gone, but his face and from his ear forward and his forehead down his chin up, he was, he was good to go. They could, they could do, good enough work to where they could view them. And so they, they shoved wow. the rest of them, what was left in Sorora, this just torso type bag. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but anyway, so folks from Nellis on 06 and 05 came over and this was a Saturday and they were in the morgue and they're like, Hey man, what, what are you guys doing? We don't even know you're here. Why are you doing dying? I mean, they had like zero compassion for sort of what's going on. And I was like, Hey man, I just lost my buddy. Like you need to, lock it up. We need a little more support here. Like it, right. they acted like this is a pain in the ass. And so that wasn't good. I had to sort of counsel them on how to properly act and, and all that. Have and some compassion. I went back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have some compassion. And 
Marco and Wayne were in the same pipeline class. Just it's, it's us. It's our similar to buds. Like you guys, yeah, you know, you yeah. through everybody graduate buds with, right? Like in yeah. our pipelines. So they graduated together. They got their braids together. And, and I walked back into the morgue and I walked back to the freezer and Marco is just on the gurney with Wayne, like sort of just coddling him, just sobbing. And you're like going, like yeah. the realness of like losing somebody, you know, versus it just being another human, a number or something like that, you know, it's right. just like, Oh goodness, this is. And, and when you're not in combat, you know, combat is, I mean, combat losing someone is tough. Don't get me wrong. Not, not minimizing that at all. Yeah. But it is different when you kind of have a, in your mind, you have an idea that that can happen. And then, yeah. uh, and then you're back in the States and you've done thousands of jumps together and you know, the next thing you know is, is what happened. It probably hit you like a, a, like a Mack truck and seemed unreal. Yeah. He was so happy that day. He was getting ready to retire. He was, uh, their oh, man, really? County Sheriff's Department. He passed their test. He was really proud. He's like 45 years old and he beat all the young guys out on their physical agility test. Um, his wife was just graduating uh, nurse anesthetist school when she was getting ready to work at the hospital as a nurse. They were setting up their next life, their transitioning life, like perfectly. And, and this was his last six months of fun, going around air ops, doing a bunch of jumping. Um, he was the happiest. He met a guy from New Jersey. He was from New Jersey, and they were talking about muscle cars. I mean, when he was walking to the plane, that's the happiest I've ever seen him. It was, it, we were just going out to do some training jumps. Yeah. And I mean, we were this guy and we turned away from each other and that's the last I saw of him. Normally I'd fly and I was more of the, the higher qual type jumpers. And so the guys would stack behind me and I'd set up the landing pattern and that type of stuff back then. And I'm like looking for his gray jumpsuit. I'm like, and I don't see him. I'm like, well, he must be in the sun or something like that. And as soon as I land, people are freaking out. I heard, I heard out of my periphery, he was in a gray jumpsuit and I like it. Like yeah. it's like somebody pulled the flush handle. It just mm. all this emotion went out of my body. Like, Oh my God, he is gone. Like, and so I saw the plane spotted his body and kept on turning over his body. And I just beelined across the desert um, to get to him. So honestly, I mean, I had a good five, 10 minutes praying over him, thinking about his wife, thinking about his kids, thinking about our buddy, Brad, who we're real good friends with. The three of us were thick as thieves for about a year and a half prior to this incident. Um, thinking about Megan, thinking about my kids. Um, this is all there on the drop zone before anybody yeah. else gets there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, I had a good little moment of being able to look them in the eyes and go, Hey man, we're going to watch out for your family. We're going to do right by you. Yeah. We're not going to give up. Sorry. This happened. You know, um, survivor guilt is real. Yeah. You wish, yeah. you know, fast forward. What happened to me once we got back is they put me up on manslaughter charges because not my immediate command, my community, but people outside our command, um, thought that I didn't give them the proper checks. And so I was under manslaughter charges for 45 days, I had to go get a lawyer, you know, all that type of stuff. And it's just like, holy smokes. How did you deal with that? The emotions that came with that after the emotions that you had just dealt with, with Wayne dying? Yeah. So 
the people who were charging me were incompetent to our duties. They were briefcase carriers. And so they were, they just had different jobs. They were technical people. They thought, they thought, hey, if you only jump four times a year, that's less than, that's less time for you to kill yourselves. If you jump 40 times a year, they don't understand currency proficiency models and things of that nature. Right. And sort of how we mitigate physical risk by doing it more and becoming better at it and debriefing and holding each other accountable and that type of stuff. They're like, all they had in their mind was the less you do it, the safer it is for us and less paperwork we have to do. And I'll get out of this command with nobody getting hurt. Right. You know, so, um, like as soon as they read me my rights, they bring an investigator in. The guy goes, ah, I know you've been read your rights. Tell me how a parachute works. <laughs> and so that moment, the investigator. Yeah. That moment I, chin up, chest out, eyes dilated. I'm like, dude, I am going to chew on your fucking femur. Excuse my language. But it, it was like, all right, you guys going to try to, you know, listen, just because the lion gets kicked in the jaw by the zebra and dies, doesn't mean I'd rather be a zebra. Yeah. And, good. That's, that's good. I'm glad that that's, those zebras are over there doing what they do. And sometimes they kick the lion in the jaw and you can't eat, you die. I mean, I was like, I'm, I'm going to be a dead lion rather than turn. Cause they were in the side and the hallways are doing all this very, you know, Hey dude, you know, just, just admit to this and we'll take care of you. And this, I'm like, you know, they're, they're doing just inappropriate stuff. Right. I mean, that's not how you, right. So I was like, okay, I'm, so I got educated on, I had a really cool ADC. He was a young captain. He was a triathlete. He's like, I like you. Like, you know, I'm like, educate me on, get me some better legal words I can <laughs> use and tell me how to act and tell me how to do this. Cause you know, I said, one thing I'm not going to do is kowtow to these guys. And so, um, Megan was great because she's like, Hey, even though we have these two young kids, I know we got to do this. If we have to live in a cardboard box, we will, you know, but this is wrong. And luckily one of the chiefs inside our community, one of our best guys, a guy named Bob Holler, um, he was a very advanced parachutist, and he just called people up and chewed them out like, you, you guys have no idea. You guys are looking like fools right now for what's yeah. going on here. And so um, it, it sort of went away. Um, the chief that was running the school, a guy named John Franklin, a really nice guy, he saw sort of like – after all this happened, he's like, he sort of saw me, my probably my thousand mile stare. And he's like, Joe, you want to get back out on the, on the horse? I'm like, Oh yeah. Get, so he goes, so Marco, uh, the guy that came up with me, um, he goes, let's go out and jump. And so me and him went out and did two or three jumps off of 53 one day. And then they came in and fired Franklin. They called it, you know, um, loss of confidence and leadership, but it was because he, he let me go out and jump and, get back on it but that was one of the best things yeah that was one of the best got your mind right yeah yeah for sure wow. that was a tough deal man and i mean sure we're still very close with his kids we're still close with gene um it's tough i mean gold star families this they never forget there's pain never goes away it's just they're they're there they miss them you could see them missing him and you're like oh man so he had everything on his back he needed to be here 
but you're still like, man, what, what could I have done to help them? Uh, we have, you know, for the audience out there, we have automatic opening devices or automatic actuation devices that open up your reserve. They sense the barometric pressure of the atmosphere as you're falling. Well, his wasn't turned on. And all we had at the time was verbal checks. Hey, is your Cypress on? Three handles, three rings, three straps. We didn't really do all this type of stuff because, I mean, even today, like I was jumping yesterday, civilians don't do any of that stuff. Nobody checks you out. It's all individual responsibility. And we were following those protocols when we first brought them over to, you're an advanced qual guy. This is your system. You're supposed to check it out. You know, that yeah. type of stuff. So and I'm then, sure that changed the, the whole JMPI process afterwards. Yeah, we changed the way we mount the Cypress. Like the Cypress was on the back of the spine. So it was on the guy's back. You can't even visually check it. Now we put them up above the reserve to where you can see them. Um, yeah, we just always, but I asked him if his stuff was on. He goes, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I said, you good to go? He goes, yeah. And so, cool. um, yeah, it went good. So then after you're cleared, what, what happens? You, you were sent to your next command or what happened then? Yeah. Um, so I was going to school at the time and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be the officer I wish I had when I was enlisted. And one of the trigger points was there was a guy from Lackland Air Force Base. He was a security forces. I think he was an E-8. And he was one of the guys that was part of the investigation and he was out of shape, just had the wrong effect for me. He was trying to, he was like, oh yeah, dude, you're, you're done. Like I had people telling me my career was done. Like they, there was no love coming my way from these outsiders. They were all yeah. like, holy shit, you're screwed. Like, you know, <laughs> so and I'd I go home and I'd I go, I don't think I am. Like I, you know, I don't get it. Like I, I don't think I am screwed. I'm talking to my guys and we're like, dude, you're not screwed. Don't worry about it. You know? But, so after this is all clear, this guy shows up at the schoolhouse and I see him and this is like eight months later. And, um, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I did a TDY down here cause I'm retiring and I'm going to try to work on the DOE range as an instructor. And I'm like, so you're burning government funds to come down and do a boondoggle trip to try to get another job. Uh, yeah, you know how it is. I, I said, dude, you're the type of guy that, I'm going to try to call out whenever I can as this yeah. goes along. And in fact, at his retirement, I, I, I went to Lackland on my own dime for his retirement. And I walked up and whispered in his ear. I'm like, Hey, how's it feel? I'm going to change everything you did while you're in. <laughs> and so, um, at that time I was selected to be commissioned, go to OTS. I had an OTS date. Um, this was like February or March of one. And, uh, yeah, it was off to the races. So yeah, there was a, there was a lot of little incidences like that, that, you know, as I tell these stories, especially when I talk to my colonels and general buddies, they're like, Jesus, Joe, I, there, there's no way I would do that. There's no way that that's how I would conduct myself. But I always had this sort of chip on my shoulder to sort of be a, an E champion because I think there was enough guys out there that weren't. Right. And I'm like, okay, I want to be over here in the small group, not the big group. And so, you know, to say it was comfortable all the time, no, 
to say I slept okay at night and did okay. You know, there's things I probably could have done different, but I'm pretty proud of the way we conducted ourselves and how we chipped through it. So. Yeah. So that, that actually leads to the next question is, is through your career, both um, in the enlisted side and on the officer side, how did you change? And, and when I ask that, I mean, how did you change professionally and then personally? What, how did that particular incident uh, affect you professionally and personally? Um, I definitely got, you know, when I became a PJ and I started to see what the guys were doing, and I saw like the majority of them were captains on the football team or the middle linebacker or, or, you know, they're dating a prom queen and they're getting straight A's on AP tests. And, you know, when these high school guys sort of coming through, you're like going, whoa, I need to up my game. You know, I need to become smarter. I need to become health, more health conscious. Um, I need to have a better attitude and be a better team player. Um, so I think that's sort of, you know, I sort of, what I developed for myself was like four, I call it four corners of clarity. It's, it's affect, cognitive, um, health and performance where you put everything together. And so I always just sort of tried to work on these micro corners and it's sort of like, you know, pararescue has a thing called jack of all trades. Well, the, the second part of that that is negative is master and none that a lot of people say. And so, but you've got to be a master of everything. And so you've got to constantly focus. Like if you're not jumping, you better go diving. If you're not diving, oh, you better go, you know, do some CQB. If you're not doing that, oh, you better go work on your technical rope systems. Oh, you're not doing that. You better go do some primary and secondary assessments on patients. So your medical uh, skills don't, don't diminish. And then you just continue this OODA loop, observe, orient, orientate, decide, and act. Um, on all the things you're doing. So your skills and, and you're not the weakest link in the chain. Like that's the worst thing guys like us can be is the weakest guy on the team. Right. You're like, oh, so yeah. you're oh, that competition. You're always sort of chasing that type of stuff. And so, you know, that's sort of what I excelled at. And so that's sort of why I reacted the way I did. Like as soon as, you know, they, they triggered my fight or flight and any incidents that I've ever dealt with, it's like, okay, I'm, I could sit here and, and take it, or I could give a little bit back, back in the sense of what I know is ethically, integrally, morally right to what's going on here. And so that's sort of how I got better. I was, you know, as you, as you know, how do you get experience, make a ton of mistakes, right? <laughs> True. You know, so, um, you, you know, I was, I was enabled by some good people to make mistakes where I didn't lose my fingers and toes even though we started out talking about a guy who lost more than lost that. more than that. Yeah. yeah. So, well, through that time, you, you mentioned, uh, mentioned, uh, talking with a, a chaplain and, uh, <clears throat> did you seek any other type of mental health support through that process? No, not back then. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Megan and her yoga practice here as we get going along, but yeah, listen, man, I got this, this, this young lady, this woman, this partner that I have living with me is all world. And so 
she's a very intuitive, caring person um, that, you know, she's always been that great sounding board. Um, and that's really all it was back then. Um, but as we went along, we got into all sorts of stuff that was way better for us and probably would have helped us even more back then. But um, now pretty much what I sought was my faith back then and counsel from Megan. I'm, I have a really close friend from high school. I have three close friends in the Air Force. I could tell them anything and my brother. Those are the people that were my sounding boards uh, throughout my, my career. Well, in the again, in the last recording, we discussed some other things that you had challenges with after you had become an officer. So you had that that incident that we've obviously discussed here for the past few minutes uh, as an enlisted PJ instructor. Then you get commissioned, and then you you mentioned several other uh, challenges in the last recording. Can you touch on those at all? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give something new for you. One thing I saw thought about after we hung up was, um, you know, injuries are very common in this type of job. Sure. I've had three soldier surgeries, back procedures, that type of stuff. Uh, one of my shoulder injuries happened in Hawaii and I was in a bad way and I walk in a tripler and they're just handing you buckets of, opioids right like oh, wow. you know like there was pain management clinics and i could hardly move my shoulder and i was popping three four at a time several times a day wow and um, megan detoxed me on the floor of our living room to reason why i talk about megan in which she's like dude and she went and stood on people's desks and i, I think this was a wednesday i was taking these pills for probably 50 days couldn't get seen in the, in the hospital. I, I absolutely needed surgery uh, for a torn labrum and some other stuff. And she went in there like a Thursday and I was in surgery Saturday. Oh, wow. Uh, but she detoxed me one day. She's like, dude, you're not taking no more of this stuff. Like, yeah. you know, it was definitely, it was definitely not good. And to, I remember being on the floor of my living room, you know, convulsing and puking and sweating. And I was like, holy shnikes. And I saw a little bit of that as it went along. That's why I was popping more. Cause not only I was feeding the pain, I was feeding like, holy shit, I'm getting ready to get sick here. And I think yeah. assistant. And I was like, so, you know, when was that? That was, uh, 2004, 2003. And so anyway, she's, uh, Got through that. That was a that was a three month hiccup in our lives, and we're living in paradise. And yeah. I mean, I didn't even go outside. Like it was like I might as well have been in Alaska in a room in a bunker. <laughs> and here we are in Hawaii. And I mean, I I was in a bad way for a hundred days, but uh, she sort of rescued me through that. Um, okay. No, yeah, totally get why you're so thankful for her, man. She's, oh, yeah. she's a trooper. Yeah, she's she's legit. Um. Well, she was always good to me. Like, listen, I'm not a bad person, but we can get anger. We can't get depression. And if you take it out on your spouse or your kids, you know, you're acting wrong. Right. Yeah. And she was always good with me going, Hey dude, look, look what you just said to your son. Look what you just said to me type thing. Like, and you're like, going, Oh man, you know, yeah. Set um, you straight. 
my bad goes a long way, right? We say that in the team room all the time. You know, they say my bad, all right? Let's just move forward from this thing. Yeah. Sometimes people are prideful and don't want to say it. And so, yeah, she's helped me with that. So after Hawaii, I got picked up to be the first Crow commander of our schoolhouse. So this is now 2006 or five, six years past 9-11. Been to, been to war a couple times. Um, Air Education Training Command, they were in a very non combat mindset before but they're like hey we're going to fix that you've been there uh prior to that the commanders were security forces guys or c-130 navigators or helicopter pilots and pretty much they let the e e9 and e8 run to show the chief and the op soup of what was needed at the schoolhouse but the curriculum and sort of how we were training the training command caught up way way slower than what the operational commands were doing. I think it was, it, it was the same across all the forces pretty much. So I was a three stars eight at the time now in Hawaii and he was going to have to release me early. My, my, my functionals call me up and they're like, Hey man, we want you to command the schoolhouse. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I was in AETC. That thing is pretty hard broke. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm like, so I, I told him, I'm like, dudes, I am going to go there and interview like, like they don't want to hire me. Like, I'm not going to act like I don't know what I'm doing or a, hey, you know, just listen to us. And, you know, like I'm going to go there to affect some change and innovate some shit. They're like, Roger that. Don't do it. Do it the way you want. So I told everybody, I told my three star, I told my commands, I'm going there. I go and interview. They're like, we love you. We love everything you're saying. And I'm calling out everything that's wrong and what they got to do. And, and I also said, hey, I want to go by and see the school. Like I interviewed in, in San Antonio and I had to go to Albuquerque to see the school. So my, my, my immediate command was, you know, geographically separated in San Antonio. So I said, I want to go by and see the school and I'm also going to tell you exactly what I saw. Yeah. You know, and they, so I did all that. I mean, it was a, it was a shit show. Like they totally were emasculating the PJs, the support people running, running roughshod over stuff. It was, it was bad. Uh, the guy I was replacing was an alcoholic. He was taking his logistics, main logistics guy, orderly room guy, two bars for lunch, you know, during duty hours and stuff. I'm like, like when I showed up there, they both invited me to go. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So I told him, I said, if you want this thing cleaned up, I'll do it. But man, I, I, I need to pick some people. I need to pick my team. We got to do all this. So they're like, Roger that. So cut orders, all that. We get there. And the day I show up, my immediate boss goes, Hey Joe, everything we interviewed. Yeah. We're not doing any of that. You just gotta, you just gotta shut up and color. Wow. <laughs> I was like, Hey dude, guess what? Everything that we talked about, I said I was going to do, that's what I'm doing. And so, uh, I lasted a year. I was fired from that job. Uh, they inspected me several times. One of the inspections they came, they said the second day I was there, I was out and gave students alcohol. I was like, where did that come from? Uh, you know, there was definitely, there was definitely people in my own community. Like one of the problems with our schoolhouse back then was that was where we send the guys that couldn't be on an operational team. So it was even worse, right? You're not training guys. You're sending, you know, not just your broke guys, but broke, 
professionally broke. Right. Broke. Yep. And so there was definitely some dudes there I was calling out that I had IG complaints from, you know, tech sergeant pararescuement thought I was being too hard on the students and stuff like that. And, I, you know, these guys haven't even seen Afghanistan yet. I've been there twice already. So, um, I was, you know, it was, some of it was internal, some of it was external. Um, but anyway, we laughed, we laughed about that. And, uh, um, one, one, a beautiful thing when I was an enlisted instructor, this guy, Pitsenbarger, Vietnam era PJ, who got the air force cross and received the medal of honor posthumously later on when he developed the combat rescue officer career field. When I was an enlisted instructor, me and another guy were selected to go get it from his dad and display it at the school. And that was the a air big force thing. Cross. Air, no, the, the medal, medal of honor. honor. Okay. And so the Air Force Museum and Wright Pat was pissed. They wanted to display it there. They were going to build a display. And he was adamant, nope, it's going to be at the schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he said I'm going to throw it in the trash, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did because I spent a, a long afternoon drinking with this guy. And he, there's no doubt he would have said that. But yeah. anyway, me and another guy named uh, Jim Sanchez, he's a retired chief. He, he was a tech sergeant at the time. I was a staff sergeant. We flew to Indianapolis went to Piqua, Ohio, and picked it up and, and spent the day with his dad. And we came back and displayed it at the schoolhouse. And it was just, so every day I walked in, as now a captain crow commander, I read his citation. And there was nothing associated with that citation that said I was going to give up and let my command in Lackland buy the wrong stuff for me like they used to do. There was a GS-15 that typed up, hey, why does it, why does it, what we owed the Air Force was 88 pararescue men a year. And there was a GS-15 at Lackland. He goes, why do 6,000 cops cost, you know, 20% of what it costs to train 88 pararescue men a year? And I'm waiting for the colonel to come in and, like, go, hey, man, that's, you know, this is what, there's different skills. There's all sorts of different equipment. There's, you know, sure. it's crazy. It's like saying a paint shipper deserves the same price of training as a seal, right? I mean, it's just, it's just sort of mind-boggling. Right. So nobody would chime in and ridicule. So I was always, I was the dude to come in, hey, man, you're, you're way out of line, GS-15, you know? And so they, I was rocking the boat big time on what they were doing. So they weren't ready for me, and that's fine. We laughed because we got Hawaii a second time out of there. We had a second tour in Hawaii. Nice. And so uh, prior to going to Hawaii, what they did is they sent me to a clandestine test organization. And that was really cool. I worked on all sorts of free space light communication systems. I mean, there was, it was a lot of special access type stuff and um, IED suppression type stuff. It was way cool job. And they put an operator with an engineer and, you know, the only reason why they had operators there was, listen, tell the engineers when it's good enough because they'll test something forever and won't ever think, think it's good enough. Right. You know, they'll try to reorganize their ones and zeros from now to the end. <laughs> and so, yep. Roger that. And so, but Perfect that was is the great, enemy of good. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a great job. And then we got Hawaii after that. So, again, and then that tour, I was at Paycom. That's when GIFCOM was still around. We had the Standing Joint Force headquarters and this – 
this joint team would go out and make, um, you know, Seventh Fleet and and Three Meth like joint staffs if they were covering HADR events. And so, when when I was in Hawaii, Banda Aceh tsunami happened, and yeah. the Fukushima power plant incident happened. Um, and it was just great going out. I mean, we were we were solving problems. Like we were walking into places and people were like, we don't know what to do. And this, this staff that we had, um, was like, we got you. And it wasn't like we did it ourselves. We're like, Hey, come over here. This is what we're going to do. This is how you fix this. And so training, training those individual services and our coalition partners sort of how to plan better and get organized and take action and how to take responsibility for authority that they had. And, um, it, it, it was a good, it was a good job for sure. Nice man. Yeah. So after that, the, the last thing that we discussed was when you were in, in command, when, as the branch director, you were directed to mental health. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what was that all about and what happened there? So after Hawaii, I come back, I'm now in, um, in the States, I got CONUS assignment. I started out in a plans and programs for a wing. That's a base, uh, Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. Became a director of operations for a squadron, then fleeted up to the, the commander of the squadron. Great, great three years there. It was a great assignment. Then they, I was, then I started looking at the retirement calculator because now I'm getting 20 something years in. Yeah. And, uh, the boys are getting, uh, you know, one's getting ready to graduate. The other one's going to be graduating in three years. You know, I'm sort of looking at like, all right, I don't need much money. What can I live off of? You know, what can we go out and do stuff with here? So, um, so at the end of the command, they're like, I was an O five select now getting ready to pin on O five and and they're like, hey, we want to send you to uh, Langley Air Force Base, where we have the Air Combat Command. And that was sort of, they're equal but different to AFSOC. And we have pararescue in the ACC, and we have pararescue in the AFSOC. And so they wanted me to go up there and be the personal recovery branch director. So I'm like, all right. And it was almost the same thing as the schoolhouse. Listen, we know there's a lot of buffoonery and bureaucracy going on in ACC. Um, but you're the guy to change it. I'm like, man, the last time I tried to change something, it didn't yeah. go well. <laughs> right? And so, uh, my wing commander, who's now, I think he's a three-star now. Great guy. Chad Franks. He's at Shaw Air Force Base. Um, he's like, Joe, we got you. Don't worry. You, you got it. You know, you're going to go. So we go up there and it was just, it was terrible, man. And it was, you know, I retired in 16. So it was prior to the election. We were coming out of continuing resolution and sequestration for eight years. I mean, it was the atmosphere inside DOD was just brutal. Like it was comptrollers were in charge. You couldn't spend money. Like if operations came up with a combat mission to need statement said, I need this or else people are going to die. The comptrollers would be like, eh, maybe, maybe next quarter. Right. I mean, it was like that bad. Yeah. And so I just went in with a gangbusters. I went in with the same sort of attitude that I have. I'm like, man, this, we got to innovate. Let's, 
Wrong answer. You're not in charge. We are type deal. And they're like, ah. And so, but uh, my anger and um, my judgment was way too high uh, towards people. There was one meeting I was in where I didn't like what somebody was saying. And, you know, I was starting to get up. And in my head, I'm like, I want to punch this person right in the nose. And the, the dude next to me, like, grabs my arm and goes, dude, what are you doing? Like, as I'm getting up, it was, it was an inopportune time to sort of stand up and move it up. You know, the conference room meetings. Like, I think yeah. I was on the wall. I wasn't at the table type deal. And so I just sort of walked out of there. And so, of course, you know, being a, a pararescue and combat rescue officer, I had plenty of doctors at my disposal to talk to and stuff like that. So I called up the medical director for pararescue and said, Hey man, I need to talk to somebody. I'm not, I'm not doing good. You know, this is, this is not good. Mm -hmm. and, and so unofficially he had me talking to some people. So when this incident happened in the meeting, I, I immediately got my car and I went to mental health and I walk in there. I go, Hey, I am hurting. I need, I need help. And like, they basically said, dude, what, what? You're an 05 like combat rescue officer, like look at all the stuff on your chest, like get out of here. This is for the girls. This is for the, like the young girls who cut themselves and mm -hmm. have mommy issues. Like they almost like, like laughed me out of the place. I was like, holy shit. Like so go back and I'm like, hi. And so, um, I had some leave. Me and Megan took leave. And one of the things she said to me, she's like, dude, you've given these guys so much time. Let's just like, let's just get out of there. It's not your fight anymore. Like not your, not your circus, not your monkeys, you know, and not to disparage anybody or whatever. It was just, it just wasn't for me anymore. That's basically yeah. the conclusion we came up to. Like I was done. Like my gas tank was empty. I wasn't, I wasn't productive anymore. So the so mental I health that you did get, or did you get any, I mean, they've kind of laughed you out of the place. What, what ended up happening? So what happened was after we took that vacation, I came back in and submitted for retirement. Okay. And like within 15 minutes, I'm on the Air Force personnel website, you know, these websites inside DOD for anybody listening, they're not Amazon. They're not easy to use. <laughs> That's the truth. It's such a truth. It's like their lowest bidder, they're convoluted. You'll put stuff in there and it's gone. Like it's there. It's so frustrating all the systems within the DOD, but I get on the, the slot where I got to set my retirement. And like within 15 minutes, it comes back denied. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not the ward of the air force here, man. I, I lived a long time. Yeah. One of the things that we didn't talk about last time that I did, um, it came back and goes only the secretary of the air force could approve this. I, I go, oh, okay. I sent the secretary of the air force an email. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> and you would not believe the generals and colonels calling me. Yeah. Joe, what are you doing, man? Joe, Joe, Joe. So not only did I send her, um, an email saying, guess what? I'm getting out, figure it out. I walked into my boss and I go, Hey, this is the date I'm getting out. Figure it out. Wow. And, and he goes, dude, I don't like the way you're acting. And I'm command directing you to mental health now, which is 
that's kind of a blessing, wasn't it? I mean, you had gone there. It was a blessing. I will say um, one of the things we didn't talk about last time, and it's sort of, um, this is a tough thing to say. Because of what I admitted to in that meeting, I was going to go hit somebody. Yeah. I now have homicidal permanently in my medical records. Oh, wow. And you're like, oh, what? I was just going to go punch some dude that deserved it, right? You know what I mean? And so, um, like, I've had life insurance denied because of that. Wow. Like, I had, you know, um, I tried to go get my, pilot's, my private pilot's license to go be a crop duster. And they're like, dude, you, have you seen your medical records? And I was like, I'm like, dude. So, anyway. Wow. Um, it's a, it's an interesting word to have in your medical records. <laughs> I would I say, say that. That, yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. agree. And listen, I, you know, I feel like bacteria. I feel like I'm going to live forever. But to say I don't want other bacteria to live, you know, that's, that's <laughs> but anyway, so, well, like a joke. So after now you've been command directed to get mental health, what did yeah. that look like? Terrible locally. Um, you know, one of the things is my community rallied around me and we found proper people like, you know, not every counselor is for every patient and it's okay to be a patient. One of the things is every, I believe in talk therapy. There is proper science to talk therapy from psychologists and psychiatrists that, and licensed counselors that people should go to. But not every one of those may be for you. And it takes a little bit to find the right person that's going to reach you and speak to you. It's just, it's no different than a book. It's no different than this podcast. People be going, man, that Joe's full of shit right now. And other people may be going, man, there's a couple nuggets he put out. I'm going to try to do that. Right. And so you got to find to poo poo talk therapy because you're not, you haven't found the right person to talk to yet. That's, that's the wrong attitude to be. You can't be, you kids get off my lawn associated with this. You have to go out. There are, there are competent people who understand what you've been through, who want to help you, who can give you tools to be better inside your ears because, um, between your ears, because that's, that's the only way you're going to, you know, you got to move forward happily because you should, everybody should, regardless of what you do. So, um, that was probably the biggest thing. I got NICO out of it. Uh, the national intrepid center, that's nice because the VA rating system sort of takes whatever NICO says and sort of, you don't have to go through the whole VA rigmarole. Right. You know, if people think, if people think one payer healthcare system, you know, like I, I'm still grinding my teeth and I have nerves starting to be exposed to my teeth. I call the VA here locally. Even though I have TRICARE for life and I have my dental insurance. I'm like, mate, I'll just go see the VA. So I called up the other day. He goes, oh, yeah, we can see you 15 May. I'm wow. like, what? 15 May? Like, I'm telling you, my nerves are exposed, and I'm in pain. He goes, yeah, yeah, 15 May. That's my earliest appointment. And so if people think that that's okay, so luckily I can afford to spend $1,500 out of my own pocket to go get, get my teeth fixed and stuff like that, even though they should be doing it for me. What, what about that staff sergeant, that senior airman, that whatever, that mm -hmm. can't do it? mind-boggling sure that people think this shit's okay well going back to the the mental health piece 
as a as a leader in the Air Force or or a prior leader in the Air Force, what advice do you have for our listeners who are potentially in leadership positions themselves to help break the stigma of seeking mental health support, both for their people and for themselves? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the things is you got to be a squared away leader. And I say that because not all leaders are squared away. So not all advice leaders are giving young people is good based on how many times they've been married, based on their financial situation, based on, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's sort of buyer beware seeking out who gives you advice. But if you feel like you have a squared away E9, E8, E7 in charge of you, O3, O4, O5 in charge of you, and you like the way they sort of live their life and stuff like that. Um, when that person recognizes that and goes, man, I want to, how'd you get your kids to here? How'd you keep, how'd you stay married this long? How, why do you just drive a non, everybody else is buying trucks that cost $80,000. Why are you driving this old beater? You know, when somebody like stops you and says, Hey, I need to talk to you about this. You have to give them time. It's the, Mm -hmm. it's the most important thing leaders do is give your people time, understand what the heck's going on. And, and, and understand that the game is long and there's little micro corrections you can make, but you got to have that carrot way out there that you're chasing. And it's got to be the proper flavor carrot because you know, there's, there's people make chasing the wrong stuff. So I think that's the big thing is not, there's all sorts of stuff that you have to do emails. You have to answer BS tasters that you got to answer up to whatever the group or higher headquarters sent down. But when that person who is really looking for advice walks in your office, stops you in the hallway, like you've got to flick the switch and go, Oh, this is the most important thing that's going on right now. And if you can't find help or if you don't know the answer, then your answer has to be, don't worry, I'm going to, I'm going to find out where you can get help. And then when you find out that outside help, especially with the stigma of counseling, you got to go, dude, I got counseling. Like I'll get, we all get counseling. It's just a lot of it's bad because it's team room or peer and they're going through the same thing and they haven't experienced it and stuff like that. But people are getting counseling. They're just getting the wrong counseling. So if we can sort of redirect this thing to where, like me and Megan joke all the time. She's like, you work in your CBTs, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's yeah. like, it's, it's good stuff. Like it, you could visualize right versus the wrong that's going on inside your head. And so um, I'm a big proponent. It's just, it, it takes a little bit to find the right, um, the right counselor. That's for sure. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I, I, I'm lucked out and, and finding the right counselor who actually ended up recommending mindfulness and meditation. And that's for me, what has helped more than anything in dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, the survivor's guilt you mentioned earlier, um, that that has been a game changer. So I want to flip it over to you on that. Uh, Do you practice meditation and or mindfulness? And if so, how did you get introduced to it? Yeah. So I live with a yoga instructor as we, we talked about. And yep. so, um, she's been doing it. We've been doing this type of stuff for about 
12 years now. I think the first yoga class we went to is when I was going through that rigmarole at the schoolhouse and they were trying to fire me. It was a yeah. miserable year. It was miserable. And luckily we were in Albuquerque and the Southwest has a bunch of cool granola eater people. And I'm not using that as a rag. I'm using that as <laughs> I get a it. Rag. I get it. Um, and we walked into this yoga room and we both looked at each other. And I mean, this, this lady was a master yoga instructor and it was you know everything from the start until you know we were in shavasana at the end i was like this is we got all we could out of this class and megan was practicing yoga she wasn't an instructor at the time she's like oh man this is this may be my calling if i can she was always a dance instructor and she's like if i could do it the way this this girl does i this is something i could get into because you could see everybody's affect before they came in and you could see their affect after they left. And so that's how we got into it. We've always had a little yoga area in a spare bedroom everywhere nice. we've lived as we've kicked boys out of the house, <laughs> turned that into our sort of our yoga room. Uh, we do a lot of private yoga. If everybody knows what that means, uh, we enjoy that very much. Um, but uh, so let me see right now we're into yoga Nidra. Yeah. And, in yin yoga um megan reads to me all the time that calms me down a lot she started doing that when i was in uh, langley she's like i'm just gonna start reading to you at night and so because i'm ricochet rabbit man i'm all over the place i i gotta be going 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 so um i've always journaled journaling has helped me immensely i've always journaled i've always kept day timers and and sometimes i'll go back i have them for like 25 years wow and so that that's helped me a bunch um i love all my playlists are very positive lyrics music um and so i do my beach stuff if i do for a walk on the beach i put music in so my mind isn't going towards negative stuff uh because i skydive and surf i mean you get a lot of good positive stuff out of that oh absolutely and uh, if I have trouble sleeping or whatever, I have a couple go-to surf sessions in Hawaii and a couple go-to, I started wingsuit a couple years ago, a couple skydive sessions or wingsuit sessions with chasing clouds or something. I'm like, man, that was, I relive those things until I fall asleep. Nice. And so um, breathing, definitely. I'm a big proponent of deep box-like breathing for sure. Um, your diaphragm is both a voluntary and involuntary muscle, right? Yeah. You know, so you can make that thing work and you can fill your lungs up and air is life. And not only are you taking good stuff in, but you're exhaling bad stuff out, right? I mean, if you get down to the biology of sort of what we got going on. Right. So, um, yeah, man, she's, she's, she's a big deal. And we do a lot of nutritional stuff too. So nice, which is important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand health and, Physical health, mental health, spiritual health. There are so many aspects to the whole body health, whole whole of self health, if you will. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely. So um, if, if you're good, I, I want to switch topics unless there's anything else on that sure. that you want to discuss. Um, no, so, no. yeah, getting ready for retirement myself, uh, a few months ago, you sent me kind of a, a packet uh, a PowerPoint presentation that had recommendation on how to transition, uh, you know, some things to think about. How was your transition 
from the Air Force and what do you wish you had known about the transition process um, and, and retirement afterward? Uh, what do you wish you had known now? So my transition was good and it was very bad simultaneously. Okay. The good part was I had a pension. We, we lived within our means. Um, I still saved money each month off that pension. I don't need to work. I didn't need that job as a COO. And that's why it, I could leave, even though they were paying me sick dollars. I'm like, I don't need this um, because it wasn't, wasn't fulfilling. My transition was bad in the sense of I didn't have a retirement um, because of the way I got out and how all that went down. I mean, they called the cop, talk about, um, they didn't call the cops on me, but so the medical system was so bad at Langley at the end, when they finally said, Hey, you can get out. Here's your orders. Here's your retirement orders. I put on my service dress. Megan put on a dress. We were going to walk into the medical commander's office an office call and just tell her, Hey, this is what, this may be stuff going on here that you don't know. They called the mental health office and they said I was in combat mode because I have my boots blouse like we do in the Air Force if you're a jumper. Yeah. I mean, I think I sent you the last day I was in uniform is that picture of Megan in the blue dress and we're smiling. <laughs> we're like happy. This is going to be our next life. Like we walk yeah. in. So they sat us down for like 45 minutes. Nobody would look us in the eye. They were, the psychologist calls me up. He's like, dude, the cops are coming your way. They think you're going to shoot up the place. What? Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, have these people just lost? Like, do they not realize like there's people that sort of get dirty that walk around and, but anyway, that, I mean, I was just, I was just flabbergasted. Like I was like, Oh man. So I had, I had a ton of anger towards the air force. And because I had a ton of anger, I, people were trying to have, to have, have me have a retirement. And I was like, I don't trust myself not to say stuff that would be inappropriate for people, you know, that would hear stuff. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. There's, yeah. This isn't happy to me type thing. Even though sure. I was happy to get out and I was very appreciative of my pension and, and all that. Not that I didn't earn it. Right. I mean, you know, I, I definitely think I earned that thing, but so it was very easy financially to get out. But it was very hard with sort of like, you know, I didn't go out the way I should have with the career I had and all I overcame and, and all the accomplishments I had and that type of stuff. So, um, to get a job, I, I thought absolutely my skills would transition to the civilian world. Um, now that I've been out four years, that's absolutely been affirmed that every veteran getting out, the biggest thing all these civilian companies need is leadership and people who aren't going to quit at the first sign of, you know, little adversity. Mm -hmm. But they think veterans have a technical gap because it's mostly all software and machine learning now and mobile and all this. I mean, there's, there's so many different companies that are trying to sell software as a service or medical devices or all these other things. They think like, I don't know, it's just sort of mind boggling. But the technical gap that veterans have is like one tenth the size of the leadership gap that these companies have because there is a ton of drama inside these companies that if they hired veterans, would stabilize out if they hired the right veteran. 
Yeah, so sure. Calm, deliberate. Let's get this. Let's move the ball down the field. Um, so, yeah, when I sent you that transition brief, I did that off my own. And it, it's a lot of it of what I've observed. There's four organizations I'm affiliated with, American Corporate Partners, uh, Elite Me, Your Grateful Nation, and Commit Foundation. And those four plus the Honor Foundation, I didn't qualify for anything the Honor was doing, but I've heard such great things and observed great things with Honor. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the Honor Foundation right now. I That's recommend. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sure. So really, you know, you got to work on your elevator pitch, right? You've got to change your team room sort of talk, depend on what type of job you want to go. You know, what I, what I tell people is pick a geography first, because then if that's the most important, if like family and where you're at and what the kids want to do, and what mama wants to do is a geography, then you research the industry, then you research the companies, then you research the positions up and down two above, two below what you think you could do inside that, that company in that industry. Um, if you're just chasing, like what I did the first couple of years, I chased jobs in New York and California and I got soft offers. I never got any hard offers because I'm like, dude, I'm not coming here and buying a million five starter home. I, this yeah. is what I think you're going to offer me. This is what I need to survive it. You know, I'm 50 something years old. I'm not going to come here and act like I'm, 22. So, um, it was smart for us to focus on the Southeast and we're both Floridians and where we want to be. And, and we could, we, we can live happily here just off my pension and I can nice. go do what I want to do. And that's, you mentioned Jacksonville university. That's uh, I'm going to go back and get another master's degree. If I get accepted into the program and try to become, when will you find out about that? Well, because of the whole, Corona stuff going oh, yeah. on now. Um, it's probably going to be a virtual interview, but and it, um, but I think they're going to happen this month. Yeah. Um, but we have such a passion for young couples. Um, we have a passion for young people living proper lives. Um, uh, these these careers are very trying on the on the individual service member. They're trying on the family. They're trying on the kids. And there's a way to properly navigate these things. And for the most part, we did that, even with the adversity that sort of came our way. Um, so, what are you doing? What are you doing to kind of help to impart that knowledge? Uh, you say you have a passion for helping. What, what are you doing? Yeah. So Megan Barnard Yoga, she's on the web and Instagram. I'll hear about guys because she'll hear from the girls. Yeah. And so it gives me the opportunity to call the captain or whoever, the E8, E9 that I know, because the wife talked to Megan. Um, so, you know, could guys reach out more? I think they could. I mean, I, I wish more people would reach out to me, but I talk to a lot of people. I think I'd get definitely people reach out to me and we'd sort of have a back and forth conversation on life and and I'm an open book on sort of how I did it. So anybody could contact me on, on LinkedIn. That's the only, I'm on Instagram, but you know, not much. Yeah, LinkedIn is pretty active, active on LinkedIn. So just yeah. Joe Barnard uh, on, on LinkedIn. B-A-R-N-A-R-D. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, yeah. what, what do we not discuss today that, that you want to make sure our listeners take away from today's episode, brother? Uh, let me see. 
probably, probably the only thing is, you know, we talked a lot about the counseling I got, but yeah, there, there's a, because of how long I was in and what I did, there was a lot of counseling I gave and what, and I was always a simpleton. I was always like trying to figure out, you know, quickest, easiest, faster, cheapest way to do stuff. I think that just sort of makes your homeostasis better. So one of the things I recognize with people is I would find people like, are they living a flow or are they living a chop? And I think those two words are very important because as I talk to people and they were in a flow state, like they're selfless, they're, you know, they're at peace, they're content, they're, they're, they're doing an act of service, you know, and then the people that were in chop were angry and greedful and saying I more than we and, you know, all those things. And you could sort of see it. And if, and if uh, Megan has this saying, and it's from somebody else, I think the last time we talked, it's like, we have zero original thoughts or everything we said, we heard from somebody else. So <laughs> yeah. not, anything I said here is not a Joe Barnard quote, right? <laughs> so um, when a student is ready, the teacher appears. And so you see a lot of frustrated teachers out there because they want students. Dude, that's like the worst way to be, man. It's like, once somebody humbles themselves and goes, just like I did it and will continue to do and everybody should do, you should call somebody competent going, hey, man, I need your, I need some situational awareness on this thing. I need some guidance on how to do this. And so um, people in shop, that's the hardest thing for them to do because when you're that addict, um, somebody addicted, you know, whatever you're addicted to alcohol, pornography or something like that, they're justifying all sorts of things in their mind, why they're doing it, why it's okay and why they don't need help. And, and all these things, all you got to do is watch that intervention show on A and E realize, Holy shit, there's, there's some crazy stuff that goes on out there. So, yeah. But yeah. once that individual goes, whether it's fitness, whether it's health, whether it's affect, whether it's smarts, you know, then you're off to the races. Now you're building teams and it's productive and that type of stuff. So I would just offer that is, you know, always evaluate if you're in flow or chop. And then if you're in flow, why? Right. Because you're going to get in chop and you want to implement what, what your flow state is so you can get out of the chop. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Actually, I think I've got the book flow sitting on my bookshelf. Oh, do you? Yeah. Can't find it right now, but yeah, it's, it's sitting right here. It's somewhere in my room. Um, uh, excellent. Uh, you know, talking about yeah, how to get to that, that state of flow, man. That, yeah. And well, reading, reading is one way to do it, man, for sure. At least for me, yeah. I, I love, I love reading. If, if I'm not reading, then I try to listen to an audio book or a podcast, just trying to get myself smarter about, uh, about myself, you know, trying to learn about things that are going to help me to be better, uh, to help me achieve that state of flow faster and more often. Uh, I think that's yeah. huge. Yeah. And that, that can make yeah. a world of difference in, in, your life, who you are uh, when you're by yourself, who you are when you're with a team, who you are when you're with your family. So that's, yeah, sure. that's awesome, man. Yeah. I'm a pot right now. What I do is I do a bunch of podcasts yeah. um, and I listen to audiobooks. Um, it was a struggle for me reading. I, I'm not because of my dyslexia. I'm not a comprehension reader. Sure. And it takes me a long time and I got to reread stuff and, um, 
while I was in, I didn't read for leisure at all, except when I was deployed. I always picked up a Hemingway or something like that and I'd read nice. a chapter or something like that when I was deployed. But when I was back home, all I did was read regulations and that type of stuff and, and uh, getting through school. I was like, oh man, this is, it was a struggle. But, um, um, you know, I stuck with it and sort of did it. But podcast stuff is just, I love listening and Megan loves reading to me and I love listening to her voice. Nice. That's beautiful thing about yin yoga. If you find like some Austrian yoga instructor who's got this voice and you're sitting there <laughs> in the old pole and she's like talking to the class, you're like, Oh my God, it's, you know, that stuff can be it. Yeah. 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 Well, Joe, this has been awesome, brother. Uh, I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks. Uh, thanks for yeah. doing the show twice. I sincerely appreciate it, man. The, uh, the first recording, there was a lot of great content in there and I wanted to make sure that we got it out there to, uh, to our listeners. So thanks again. I, I sincerely appreciate it. And I know our listeners will too. Yeah, man. Uh, no worries. Everybody be good out there. Be careful. Yeah, no doubt. Be safe, be healthy. And, and for our listeners and, and potentially our viewers, thanks for listening to our show. Thanks for viewing our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. And we too are on social media. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and families. And remember listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.